thank you to everyone that has tuned in thus far and has helped make 52 Weeks of Hustle such a success. I've had such a great time sitting down with industry leaders. Thank you to the leaders and for all the listeners and your continued support. I'm excited to have joined General Sports Worldwide, where Lou DePauli and I will be focusing on executive search and team consulting. Our services will range from recruiting, onboarding, training, development, business planning, consulting, and much more. We're really looking to be a full service agency for our clients to assist them in their return on investment and return on energy. Please let me know if you have any interest. In addition, thank you for everyone that has supported the book, Hustle Your Way to Success in Sports Sales, a playbook to be an elite in the sports business industry. It's available on Amazon in ebook, paperback, and audio versions. Be sure to check out 52weeksofhustle.com as well as to follow on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hustle. I'm Travis Apple, and I'll be your host of this podcast. I've been fortunate to spend my entire career in the sports sales industry, and I wanted the opportunity to give back, to give back to those individuals that want to get in this business, or for those that are in this business that want to continue to excel at an elite level. For those of you who know me, hustle has always been important, hence the name. Each week, I'm going to have the opportunity to sit down with industry professionals to talk about their career growth, what it takes to be successful, and ultimately a few key takeaways for you to apply to your everyday. Without further ado, our guest this week. In this business, the discussion is often about building and growing from companies to personnel to national and global brands. Our next guest has made a career out of it and has an extensive track record in sports, entertainment, and digital industries. I'm excited to have Daniel Maggot, an operating advisor for Zelnick Capital Media, as well as early stage tech companies addressing the sports and entertainment industries. Danielle, welcome to the show. Hi, Travis. It's really nice to be here and to speak to your audience. I'm, I'm really excited. I uh, can't wait to hear what you want to talk about. No, I'm excited for you. And we're certainly going to dive into your career journey and, and a lot of, of opportunity. I know you'll provide great advice as well. So let's start with some advice for the listeners. What do you feel like you have done to gain such a great track record of building, operating, and growing businesses in this space? Yeah, so um, I've worked you know, technically in sports and entertainment, right? So those are the two verticals. Um, I think the one takeaway I would say, and in in, if I had to say one best lesson that I've taken away in, in the last 25 years is to, and you probably hear this a lot when you do this podcast, is to never underestimate the pace of change and disruption. It's pretty staggering. Um, the world has changed so much in such a short amount of time, and there are verticals and industries that didn't even exist you know, 10 years ago, let alone a year ago. So it's, it's sort of frightening when you really think about it. Um, but I think the lesson for me and for a lot of people is to just accept and embrace this change and, and look for opportunities. And that's how new businesses are born. And that's how existing companies adapt. And so I've always tried to attach myself to those opportunities and to, you know, changing to really growing along with the pace of change. Right. You know, the one constant in this world is change, but you've got to be willing to evolve and, and adapt to it. And you've certainly been known as a thought pay leader. To, pay attention to it. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, you, again, Danielle, you've been known as a thought leader and you're an early executive with StubHub and you're a key player in leading that company, both from inception to such a global brand that it is today. And so you spent 14 years with StubHub. How was that overall experience for you? Um, well, I started as an advisor, you know, and, and to give them credit, I think they were a seismic company that really disrupted an industry um, because they were placing themselves 
squarely in between the rights holder and the consumer when you think about it, right? Usually this, the season ticket holders only communicated with the venues, right? And here StubHub came and they were like democratizing access. So it was really attractive to me. Um, the founders came to me and asked me to be an advisor. Um, no one really understood what it was. It was actually called Liquid Seats at the time. And then I, I took, I had moved to San Francisco for personal reasons. Uh, and I was like, wow, you know, this, these guys really get it. And they knew that they needed an industry person, right? They're brilliant, Stanford Business School, but they had to sort of navigate the ecosystem, which um, again was, it was, you know, fairly disruptive. So for me, I would say StubHub in the 14 years that I spent uh, at that organization, initially as an advisor, and then, you know, growing into a multi-billion dollar organization within GMB was probably my most proud because no one, no one, not only were we building a business, but we were actually building like uh, a whole new category. Like no yeah. one knew what ticket marketplace was, right? So right. here we were developing a brand that became like Kleenex, right? Because this was long before Vivid Seats and SeatGeek and all these others came into play. Right. Um, there was there was eBay. And so this was sort of a more managed eBay tickets. Yep. Uh, and so we built business and we also built the actual like industry. So I would say those 14 years are, are just the most proud. You know, and you mentioned you went from advisor to then global head of partnerships and business development. And during their time, you, you've helped establish such a consumer brand that ultimately generated billions of dollars, you know, and it actually created that official ticket marketplace category, did a massive, you know, really industry changing deal with MLB, and then ultimately helped negotiate StubHub's groundbreaking naming rights deal with AEG in LA. And so as you think back to your time, you, you said that was a great experience. What do you feel you knew you and your team were disrupting that industry? What were you most proud of and, and what led to your team's success and being able to do that? Um, well, God, there's, there's a lot to say. You, you brought a lot of things in that one question. So, <laughs> uh, so again, I think, you know, the most important thing was, look, there's, there's a conversation about teams and then there's, you know, about success. And, um, Related to whether it's StubHub or any of the organizations that I've, I've, you know, led teams or been part of the business, I have a lot to say. Like to me, a leader is only as successful as the teams and individuals who make up the organization, right? So uh, when we, in particular at StubHub, since we were sort of disrupting an ecosystem, for me, it was particularly important to hire people that um, were trusted, you know, in that ecosystem and that could speak the language. Um, and that could really like build the relationships and show the rights holders that we wanted to partner and to have skin in the game, right? And so I spent a lot of time building those teams with that in mind. Um, I think you know, on a more personal level, and this this is not just at StubHub, but but the rest of the organizations, like I people would think of me as a people person, like literally a people person. Um, I love my teams, my teams, I become very involved personally with them. Um, I stay in touch with most of the people and across, you know, whether my teams are 80 people or 150 people, um, I tend to stay in contact with them for years and years. Um, I think that the most important thing is to take those people at the organization you're at and actually like have them moving forward it together and rowing in the same boat together. Um, I'm bringing this up because you, you asked us about, you asked me about StubHub and what led to success. Um, it was really about taking those people, building the teams as a startup, um, taking, they're extremely talented and having them row together in the same direction. Um, 
and this is where I like to talk about what I call functional growth. Um, there's leaders that like dysfunctional growth and they like to pit people against each other, right? To create optimal performance. I started my career and, and I will let it be un, unnamed at this point with <laughs> someone who liked to do that. And it led to extraordinary performance, right? Yep. But it was, it's painful. Like, you know, people, there are leaders that like dysfunctional growth. They like to pit people against each other and let the, let the winner come out on top. Right. I um, am the complete opposite. So I like to see everyone uh, drive towards performance together and not competing with one another. And so I think at StubHub, we had uh, across the organization, really smart, nice people who were really passionate um, about building the brand and who were very, very aligned to create a best in class product. Yeah. And I think that it was really as simple as that. It was very, it was a lot of work, a lot of trust, um, but we were aligned to build a new experience for the customer and to disrupt an industry. And so it was just growing together. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, Danielle, as part of the executive team there, that resulted in you overseeing business development for all of the, the revenue verticals. And many times in this business, we talk about the importance of efficiency and effectiveness. So what do you feel like you did to help prioritize, prioritize and keep those revenue streams moving on a consistent basis? Um, again, and this is not just for StubHub, but for all my the companies I've worked at. I think working cross-functionally, you know, across interdepartments, so I was really close to the CMO and, uh, you know, and the head of PR and the head of product and the head of engineering. This is for stuff, right? Yep. So it, it was, we were optimizing the customer experience and trying to, again, create this best in class product, um, working together and not in silos. And that was sort of the same, my experience at 21st Century Fox, which we'll talk about later, was a very similar, like to drive towards success and for revenue, it was how do you work across the organization, the global organization, um, and, and prevent and present the best product for uh, a partner, like a marketing partner, and not work in a silo. And I think um, it's just been the consistent theme in my career is I like to build consensus um, and not sort of drive towards a revenue goal on my own or in my team on my team's own without uh, working together with other teams to, to no. drive op optimal performance. Absolutely. And when you think of revenue and you start talking about the billions of dollars generated from StubHub, what is your advice to listeners on just being able to think big? Um, that's a great question. I think people sometimes, you know, and I can talk a lot about sort of confidence. I think that there's brilliant. I've worked obviously with many entrepreneurs and I think that entrepreneurs have this ability to be like super silo focused on their vision. And I'm envious sometimes, you know, they don't clutter sometimes their, their brains with what cannot be done. Um, I'm an operating person as well. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm like this crazy visionary the way I work with sort of entrepreneurs. I focus on how to get things done efficiently and effectively. And so I think sometimes often we can stop ourselves from progressing because you're focused on the, Oh, I can't do that. This can't be done. Um, and I, I think that it's really admirable to watch entrepreneurs like just be super single-minded focused on where they're going um, and believing in that vision and having the confidence to follow through on it. Um, I think there's tons of opportunity, as I mentioned earlier, like this is a rapidly changing environment, you know, and the one we're in technology, the, mer the, mer the merging of like sports entertainment technology. So it's oh, you know, believing in your vision, believing in your vision and having the confidence to actually go after it and hire the right people to make you successful. 
And I think that's a key, right? Is hiring the right people to assist, to, to work alongside. And after your time with StubHub, you became part of several private equity companies, first with Redbird Capital Partners and helped advise the NFL on location transaction. And now you currently advise Zelnick Capital Media, which is a big player in the sports space with, with ultimately the NBA 2K League, you know, with a previous 52 weeks uh, hustle guest, Brendan Donahue, the commissioner there, as well as a ticketing supply company, Logitix. In addition, you're also helping with early stage companies in the NFT and AI verticals. So what do you enjoy most about the advising some of these up and coming businesses? You know, every time, um, well, I sort of toggle. It's a great question because I, I'm, I have a constant struggle of like digging into one organization and I tend to gravitate towards entrepreneurial divisions within large organizations. That's sort of my sweet spot, um, in which StubHub, when eBay bought the company, you know, became that. Yep. Even though we started as a st- startup, I started a new sales group when I was a 21 CF. So, I, you know, I joined an established group but was tasked with actually starting a new group. And so, um, you know, I, I just feel like uh, when I am not submerged in a large organization, um, overseeing a lot of people, I like to take that time to advise and work with a couple of different companies to more like as a growth opportunity and to continue learning. Right. And I, as I mentioned earlier, like there's a changing landscape, you know, it goes so quickly sport technology and the demographics that participate right in sport and and the the consumer, right. The, their attention is waning. And so I find it fascinating to learn the, the new companies that are out there addressing those attention needs and how they're doing it. And to, help them get to the next level. Um, it's really fulfilling for me and it's super exciting. Um, and, you know, I think young organizations have a hard time navigating in the sports space because it's, as you know, very insular. Yep. Um, there, it's a tribe, it's a tribe, right? And so I can have the holistic view of coming in and saying, oh, this is really how it works. This is where the opportunity is. You know, I'm working with an extraordinary NFT company right now um, that just got funding by Elysian Park and Alpha Edison, which will be making an announcement on soon. Um, you know, Elysian is the, you know, the, the, the Todd Bowley, the venture capital, I don't know if you know it, but they are very particular about what they invest in. And this NFT organization is just primed for success. And so I saw it early. Um, I think now others are seeing it from an investment perspective. I was very involved with them starting five months ago. Um, and I learning about NFTs, you know, that's another, that's an opportunity. It's here to stay. Like yep. it, it is here. Not to going stay. anywhere. No. And then the operating, you know, as far as private equity firms, look, I absolutely love working on transactions and portfolio companies. There you have like the commitment by the private equity firm. So they're well-funded, right? You have the ability for these organizations to grow. And, and I just like to help them focus on the right growth, right? The, 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 the way to grow properly and functionally. So I like to toggle both those early stage and then the private equity portfolio side. Danielle, you hit on a, a really big hot button of mine there is talking about continuous education. So what's your advice to listeners on no matter what role you're in, whether you're just starting in this business, whether you're a C-level executive or anywhere in between, the value of just continuous education and continuous learning? Well, it goes to the earlier point where I, well, maybe I didn't say this, but I should, you know, I'm the prime example of a career not following a linear path, right? If you look, I, I started in production at the NBA, right? You know, right. And we'll talk about that later. And then I went to business school, right? To get my uh, graduate degree. And then I went into strategic planning and, that, you know, so I, 
I feel like um, I have just wanted to grow and learn, right? And I think that um, not following a linear path can seem frightening to a lot of people. I think that, you know, you start the coordinator, you go to the manager, and then you're a director. And a lot of people do that, and they do that at leagues in particular. Yep. But I think the world is really big now, and I feel like following a formal linear path is a bit of an antiquated assumption. To, and so it it's, can be the safe way. Um, but I, what I like to tell people that I mentor is, you know, look at the greater ecosystem for opportunity. Yep. Um, it's yeah. out there. You know, look, don't look at just the major leagues or the teams. Um, what seems like maybe a sidestep at any given time can actually, and then this would happen with Stubba, right, for me. It was started as an advisory, and then people were like, what are you doing? What is this company? And then it turned into, you know, the most fulfilling 14 years I've had in my career. And I just feel like people should be open to those sidesteps because they can lead to really, they can lead to some really exciting opportunities. No, absolutely. And as you think about your time as an operating advisor, what are you most proud of as you think about how you're continuing to assist with commercial growth, marketing, and business development for these companies? Um, wait, ask me what's, what am I most, what do I think is most important? What are you most proud of? As you think about all the companies that you're from an operating advisor standpoint. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So what I'm most proud of, I would say is the relationship that I've forged with um, both the founders of some of the organizations and the people and the teams that I've built. Like I feel, you know, just this week alone, it's interesting. And I really, that's, that is a short answer. Like this week alone, I had dinner on a Monday with um, someone who's like a brother to me that I work with at StubHub who just was in town to ring the opening bell, you know, at nice. um, for, for, for Vivid Seats, yep. And then, you know, took him out Monday night to celebrate. And he and I were locked at the hip for eight years. And I'm just really proud that I was able to help him grow in his career. And then Wednesday night, I had dinner with someone who was like my sister that um, worked with me on my team at 21 Seattle, 21st Century Fox, who's now the chief commercial officer for Misfits Gaming, right? And she came from the college division at Fox, you know, from the, the college properties, was young, you know, and I just was able to work with her and, and sort of help her grow. And I think what I'm most proud of is the role that I have been able to play with people that have worked with me and the people that I work for. I think, um, again, I started, I said before, I'm a people person, like, it's great to build great products, but it's the people that help you get there that to me is the most formative. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Again, we're here on 52 Weeks of Hustle. The guest today, Daniel Maggot, Operating Advisor for Zelnick Capital Media. And Danielle, you also spent three years in media sales, as we previously talked about, with Fox Networks groups, as well as an impactful year with Leading Advocacy or Global Citizen. So at Fox Networks, you were the Executive Vice President of Global Solutions and the Head of Revenue for National Geographic. So how do you feel like targeting revenue streams for 21st Century Fox is similar to those targeting revenue streams on the team and league side? Um, honestly, it's, it's, there's a lot of similarities. I mean, we'll talk about global citizens separately. I think that having, and this is very relevant for teams, having elite, sophisticated, and, and again, it goes back to my functional word, right? And highly coordinated sales groups. So let's just say, and this is no different than immediate sales, right? So sponsorships, premium, ticketing, licensing, retail, that don't work in silos. And what I've seen at the team level, and you know, working at the sort of venues that I've seen normally in the, I think that's changed recently, but normally those groups work in silos and they're not particularly in sync, you know, and I think they don't develop products for the customers that are, that, that are together or highly creative. I think now um, there's more, I think brands are asking for more when they partner with teams or in the media sales. And I think they want much more creative solutions. And so what I have seen, and I think that's the trend is that there's going to be high, much more coordinated uh, sales efforts, whether at team level, venue level, and also media sales. Like you're seeing some really cool stuff, like say Fox Sports, or and yeah. you're not seeing just general like ad sales. And so I think that that has been the trend, and that's what we were tasked to do. Um, and I feel like at the team level, that's what team presidents and chief commercial officers are focused on: is working with the premium ticketing, working across departments, right? Yep, absolutely. And while, while you're at 21st Century Fox, you and your team received multiple industry awards for partner content campaigns, including two Cannes Lions awards for the Nike National Geographic effort. And so how much time and energy from you and your team just went into those projects to ultimately end up with some awards? Um, that was a really exciting chapter. Um, that was, those were related to um, National Geographic, which which originally was not part of my purview. And then when I started um, I started in 2000, when did I start there? 2015, um, a couple months after I started, uh, 21st Century Fox bought out the rest of National Geographic. So we bought their digital and print as well. So we had to figure out ways to package it together. So meaning not just with the ad sales, right? So right. we really had to put thought into developing compelling packages to drive revenue across digital print and linear. And how do we do that? And so what, we, did, what we, we put together things called like chasing genius. And we, we had very large concepts that advertisers could be attracted to and that they could actually participate in across all the different platforms. And, you know, it was a very small team. It was a very nimble and brilliant and creative team. And so when we, when we actually won those con lion, which I, you know, I'd never before been part of that, but then that, that Nike breaking too, it was an incredible experience. I mean, it was like, I mean, the National Geographic has won many awards, but not necessarily right. sort of not, not in the sales sphere. And so it was a lot of work, a lot of creativity, and it was very, it was just sort of seismic for the organization. You know, and I'm sure with those projects, similar to what a lot of our listeners go through on a consistent basis is dealing with rejection, objections, things coming in the way of, of just accomplishing what they want. So what's your advice on continuing to power through and understanding, you know what, it can be rewarding, but it may just take some time. 
Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I think, the issue of uh, rejection, and then there is sort of the issue of um, even being nervous to take that first step to get rejected, <laughs> right? Yeah. So I find, I, and especially early in one's career, like people, look, I, I like, I always hire people that give me their opinion. I have worked for people who really don't want my opinion and who just sort of want like that tribal yes. Yep. Um, and so, so rejection is sort, sort, is sort of tied into that. If you give people room to breathe and to give you their opinion respectfully, they'll feel, they'll be able to, you know, there, there's, there's less of a chance for a rejection because it's a real dialogue, right? Yep. That's more in sort of like the day-to-day management style. Um, and, and you really want to foster rejections very closely tied to confidence, right? So you want to foster confidence in your young people or you know, your more senior leaders. Um, um, so I just, you know, I focus a lot on, and this is probably more for young women, um, to really combat fear and insecurity. There's something that you can probably do lots of reading about called the confidence gap, right? And I think that even senior women struggle oftentimes with, oh, you get called for certain huge jobs. Well, I can't do that, or I'm not ready. And I think that the more that they get built up and the more young people get built up early in their career that they can leads them to better handle rejection and leads them to cross that sort of confidence gap divide. Um, I never really had mentors to work through those issues with me. And I think that that's in my generation, it just didn't really happen. You know, it was a long time ago when I was coming up. Um, there was one woman who, you know, became sort of a role model for me as to what kind of leader I wanted to be and, and made me more confident, but it was a little later in my career. So I just um, try to get people to have confidence in themselves so they can handle rejection better. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's all about confidence and, you know, appreciate the advice. And Danielle, you were also the chief growth officer going back to, to Global Citizen, which was the global advocacy movement behind the COVID-19 broadcast music fundraising campaign. And, and these numbers were insane to say the least, you know, through corporate and philanthropic partnerships, the organization raised $127 million in 21 days and mobilized over $1.5 billion in COVID grants, which helped support millions around the world versus, you know, this, this pandemic that we all went through. And so everyone knows the craziness of this time. How rewarding was that experience for you? You know, a lot of people ask me, well, first off, the experience was like, unlike anything I've ever gone through before and I'll get to that those 18 days in a second but a lot of people ask me you know and I want you by the way I want you to say advocacy five times in a row <laughs> <laughs> I know it's uh and especially as I'm, yeah. I'm reading and trying to figure out all that I, process and then there's those words that just advocacy advocacy, advocacy. Yeah. so it is an important word because global citizen is the world's largest advocacy org and so when they called they were looking for this chief growth officer role and it was really meant to unite a bunch of departments internally um, to drive towards what was originally supposed to be um, like a live aid event, sort of what they just had actually, uh, similar in scope to what they just had a couple weeks ago. Um, but what attracted me originally when I got the call to come in and speak to them was the ability, I knew them, I knew them just from the concert in Central Park, but you know, it was very limited in, in what I understood about them. Um, and then when I took a sort of a deeper dive and look under the hood, I was sort of blown away by their business model, right? And their ability to inspire change and demonstrate the power of the collective action, right? It's all about people. It's all about drive. The business model is the flywheel. 
it's um, you know, tweeting and taking action and then it's reward. So it's the carrot and the stick. You get to go to these concerts, right? But it's all about driving change. And so um, I just thought it was the most profound mix of, of pop and policy when I really looked hard at it. And I thought I could really help them grow. And so, you know, here I go, I start. Um, and then driving towards this sort of live aid event and then all of a sudden COVID happens, you know, and then it became, what can we do, you know, as the world's leading advocacy or it was very, very quick. As you met, Lady Gaga came to us uh, in March, it was the end of March. And then we signed on with the networks. We didn't even know how these virtual events were working. Um, <laughs> yeah, very early on into the virtual world. We were very, very early. This was um, literally, we, we went virtual from the office. Uh, we were a little bit late, like middle of March to end of March. And then at the end, I'll never forget, it was my husband's birthday. And we were, you know, sort of in quarantine. And 20, March 29th, Lady Gaga, we started talking to her. And then April 18th was the event called One World Together at Home. And we, and this is a nonprofit. This is very important. This was a nonprofit that sort of acts like a commercial organization, right? So. Yeah. The, the the policy organization is the heartbeat and the good that they were doing for the world, right? It's a very lean organization. And so we built in 18 days that it was, the, I think it was eight hours of programming and we got, it's not like there's a sales division that can go out and get all the outlets, the broadcast outlets. That right. was like, that was the corporate sales group and the production group and me, those were all, we were the ones that were calling Amazon, you know, and obviously Hugh, who's the CEO and founder is extraordinary, right? And so we had Amazon and YouTube and then all three networks. So yeah, we, we it wasn't a consumer. It was um, corporate. The money that we raised was from corporate and philanthropic. philanthropic. Right. Um, yeah. Say that one five times fast, right? Philanthropic. <laughs> and it was, uh, you know, we, did, we raised that money in 21 days and then we turned around and did a second campaign um, with European Commission, which is the one you mentioned, the 1.5 billion. That was where countries were dedicating money towards COVID. Just, and that was the 1.5 billion. So that was, you know, I, I had, a, when you asked me my most proud, like StubHub, because I was there for so long and it's like family to me. Yep. Um, and, and I built the company and helped build the company and brand. But Global Citizen was really as far as helping the world. Um, and it was, it was pretty uh, fulfilling for me as a, yeah. as a career move. That, that was awesome. And what a great experience. And so, and yeah, now going back to the beginning a little bit, you grew up in New York City with a twin brother and an older brother. And so from what I hear, you spent a lot of time at local sports venues with your dad. So when did you know kind of that sports industry was something you wanted to do as a career? So let's see, I started, I grew up in New York City. I was a diehard Jets fan. So I was going to Shake Stadium. Uh, I had a twin brother. He was like not particularly interested in sports. I somehow got the sports gene. Mm-hmm. My older brother would come once in a while. Um, I actually have a twin and an older brother. And my dad and I just bonded like really early on sports. And then started going Knicks games. And I was in high school and I started going Knicks games with my friends from school. And I don't know basketball in particular. I love football, but basketball in particular, I just became a bit enthralled with. Um, and, in, and especially at MSG, I mean, this was in the 80s right like eons ago so we would jump down from like you know one level of seats to the next and i was just totally enthralled by the nba so um by the time i got so i went to school in new york uh and i went to columbia and i was really lucky that i was in the city because it gave me lots of opportunity 
Um, I did not have any friends. This was early. This was late eighties, right? So I didn't have a lot of friends in the industry. I didn't have a network and blah, blah, blah. So I, I just knew that I was really attracted to the NBA in particular. And so um, I did some research and I, you know, to your mantra, I did, took a little bit of hustle and I, I, found, I found there was one, um, there was one agency at the time that had Patrick Ewing and Michael Jordan and it was called ProServe. And I don't even know if, you know, the youngsters in the industry today even know ProServe, but at the time it was like, it was like CAA, you know, Endeavor. It was like the agency for sports. So they had Arthur Ashe. So somehow I finagled, um, I marched myself down there. I got an unpaid indentured servitude uh, internship with them my freshman year. And a lot of I, our young listeners don't realize internships used to not be paid. <laughs> it's called indentured servitude. That's the other, the other name for it. We know. So now, of course, they have to be paid. Although, yeah, right. That's fairly recent, like the, the interns having to be paid because of the you know, lawsuits. Yep. But back then we worked, yes, yeah, so I, I would come in probably, we would take the subway down, come down. Um, I met some, I met people there that I still keep in, like Ross Levinson and Steve Harwood. I mean, it's crazy. I still keep in touch with the people that Kevin O'Keefe, I don't know if these are people you've ever heard, but they were all working at ProServe and that's how I met them. And I ended up, so they had Jordan and Patrick Ewing and I don't know. That was when my sports bug was pretty much solidified. Um, I did some really cool stuff. Um, I worked for them on and off for three years of college yep. um, during the school year. And then that led me to, you know, knowing, unlike most people, I was very clear about what I wanted to do when I graduated um, after that phase. Yeah. And, you know, we talked briefly about objection and, and having a passion. You, you talked earlier, going to MSG, you had a passion for basketball, gravitated towards that. And so you said probably back then, you know what, I want to find a way to, to work in the NBA. So upon graduation, you decide you want to work there and you yeah. interview not once, twice, not three times, but 23 times. That's right. 23 times before you were finally offered a job in NBA entertainment as a production assistant. And so as you think about that, what made you keep going? You know, I actually was thinking, was it 23? It could have been 26, to be honest. I'm trying to remember. <laughs> Maybe more. You know, originally, I, I somehow got an in at the properties division under Rick, Rick Welt at the time. He was running it. And then I was pushed to, I mean, I literally met, there's so many people I keep in touch with. Then I think I met with like Michael Dresner, who was running sponsorship. And, you know, there's just all these other, these areas that I was trying to, I didn't care. I just wanted to work at the NBA. So I wasn't picky. I just knew that was the organization. And this is when David was, was running things. And then somehow uh, I was not getting anywhere. Oh, yeah, we'll keep you in mind. And they were all assistant jobs because that's how you started back then, right? Right. As an assistant, right? And so um, I finally, through a, a, close, a friend of mine from college who had gotten a job, um, Stephanie Schwartz, her name is Stephanie Schwartz. She uh, was at the NBA Entertainment Division and she was working for Don Sperling, who was running it at the time. She's like, oh, you know, there's like this assistant level position open. Why don't you come and interview? And the weirdest thing is I just got a job offer in I, from a bank, believe it or not, from a trading floor. So this is the strange way kismet with life. So I, I was evaluating an opportunity. I was really talking about rejection. I was really feeling down. I had six months been interviewing. I was bartending at night to support myself. And I just was at my wit's end. So I come in, I interview for this assistant job. Um, working for Greg Winnick, uh, who, you know, became a very close mentor and friend. 
Um, and he was starting MBA Inside Stuff, which was the program yep. with Ahmad Rashad and Julie Moran. And they needed the production assistant and, you know, an assistant to help Ahmad and Julie. And so I, it was very quick. It was a really, it was like maybe a two week process. I pushed off this other training floor opportunity. And I'm like, you need to tell me soon. And Greg, to his credit, finally, you know, number 23 or number 26 was the charm. And I started at MBA Entertainment. It was only 33 people when I started. Yeah. I was, yeah, I have a hat. It has like number 33 on it. And I started there in 1990. Uh, and I worked there for a very blissful, really hardworking uh, five, five and a half years. It was an, an incredible experience for me. And I think that's why you're a perfect guest to be here on 52 Weeks of Hustle. You had that passion and hustle, right? Hustle not only 23 or 26 times, whatever it is. Most people would have stopped after three um, to get it. Probably. And then you, you, you put a lot of time and effort in the NBA in five years. And then you, uh, you went to business school, then ESPN in the international division. And after ESPN, you went to, to MSG, then a move you previously mentioned for personal reasons out to San Francisco, which really transitioned into your StubHub career. And so looking at that, and you talked about, you know, throughout this podcast disruption and doing just things differently Looking at your kind of resume, it wasn't always the most conventional move and certainly a lot of risk and taking chances. So what motivated you to do that at the time? Um, I think I, I knew intrinsically, like I mentioned earlier, that I wanted to grow my skills. You know, I think, uh, you know, even talking about I left a great job at the NBA. Um, I was there almost six years but I was involved in very high level sort of negotiations with programming partners like NBC and Comedy Central. And Greg gave me, Greg and, and, and Don were incredible. They gave me amazing opportunity. And I felt sometimes out of my league um, from a PL, you know, I hear I was 26 years old, right? So from a PL and from an actual business operations and management side. So I, I sort of instinctually knew that I wanted to maybe get an MBA so I could operate at a little bit of a higher level. So yes. I stepped away, you know, so that sort of prompted me why I decided. And if, you know, if I got in great, right. if I didn't get in, okay, no, no problem. You'll figure it I'll, out. I'll figure it out. I'll stay at the MBA and, and probably have a more linear path. You know, I probably would have stayed there like some people for 18 years. I'm sure you know some of those people, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so, but then I, you know, I, I, I somehow, you know, racked as a guy at the business school and, it, and that was a really incredible growth period for me, you know, it opened my eyes. And so, Every step after that has really been some by accident. The stuff of thing was really by accident. Um, although I met the founder, Eric Baker, at the Garden. He came in to speak to me. We had mutual friends. Um, and again, it was called something else. It was called Liquid Seats. And I thought, hey, he's really onto something, but he needs to change his business model, you know, from private label to an open marketplace. So um, I just was always, I was always very open to opportunity and to changing the way that things are done. And I think that a lot of leaders are not. I think that they like safety. And I think that I've tended to gravitate towards more risk-taking, um, which, you know, comes with a little bit more emotion and it's just, you know, obviously it's just a little harder. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I just feel like it served me very well. I have an appetite for that. I also continually want to grow. You know, I think that that's even now, you know, with the NFT space, I think there's extraordinary seismic change taking place. Like, I think, um, I think for digitizing fandom, like the NFTs have the opportunity to do, uh, or like Logitech's, you know, what Logitech's is trying to do um, with the supply 
system, you know, in, in the ticket and yield system, I think there's just better and more interesting ways of doing things. And I, I'm always curious on how to do that. Well, Danielle, this has been great and, and, you know, a lot of fun, a lot of great journey and, and certainly hustling your way to, to having a ton of success. And so to close it out, I'd like to put our guests on the hustle hot seat. So you ready for this? All right. All right. If you were to sail around the world, what's the name of your boat? Keep it simple. Nice. I love it. If a, <laughs> if a movie was made about your life, who would you want to play you? Oh, this is hands down. So it's one person and she shared, she's my birthday, my exact age and my birthday. So I'm going to go with Julia Roberts. Perfect. Perfect. If you'd have dinner with one person, you know, dead or alive, who would it be? Okay. This is so easy for me. I mean, this is ridiculously easy. Two words, two names, Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> love it. I love it. That would be a, that'd be a fun dinner conversation. I'd be a waiter at that table. Yeah. No, yeah. I've seen him by the way. I've seen him 57 times live. So. 57 times. Yeah. What's your favorite yeah. song? Um, Tougher Than the Rest. All right. But or, I mean, or, that... no, or No Surrender. I like those two. And both of them are, you know, kind of the, the epitome of, of your career. So I love it. I wouldn't say that. No Surrender, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, well, to close, to close it out, what are three key takeaways you'd give every listener to be in your shoes one day? Well, so one of them goes with my uh, my boat name, my, my yacht name. We'll call it a yacht that someday, you know, maybe. Yeah, not um, just a little boat. No, not just a little boat, a nice yacht. Um, so, yeah, I find that keeping drama to a minimum is, like, super important. I feel sometimes people get, you know, wrapped around the axle on, I wasn't invited to this meeting or, what you know, blah, blah, blah. So I think yeah. um, keep the drama to a minimum. Don't get wrapped up with the small stuff would be number one. Um, number two is probably a consistent theme that, you know, through our conversation today, which is work with people that you actually really like and want to hang out with because life is really short. And so that has been an overriding, I, I have not taken jobs, even extraordinarily experiences on paper that look like the best chapter for you. Cause I just didn't feel it, you know, I the think right that, people. Yeah. For you. Just for, yep. for you, right? So you know how, you know, get to know yourself and make sure it's the right fit. Um, and then the third, again, is what we've talked about a lot. Uh, be really open-minded about less linear paths and, and, be able, and be willing to take chances. I know it's, it can be hard, but our ecosystem, as you've seen, look what you're doing, right? You just changed your career. We have yep. the same sort of ecosystem, but what you're, what you're doing is the perfect example. You know, now you're on sort of the agency and the recruiting and the offering a 360 solution. that's a little different than what you've been doing. Right. And I feel like people should be really open-minded about the opportunities out there that are not as obvious. Yeah. Great advice. You know, going back to it, you, I love your yacht name, right? It's keeping it simple, keeping the drama out, you know, gravitating towards the right people. It starts and stops with people in this world, in this industry. And, and I love it, you know, being open-minded to a new path. You don't have to follow a consistent path. And so Danielle, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And I certainly appreciate your time and expertise. I really enjoyed it, Travis. I love that you're doing this. So, you know, good luck. Keep it simple, keep it real. And let me know if you ever want to chat again. Absolutely. Well, again, this is Travis Apple. Thank you for listening to 52 Weeks of Hustle. Please be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. We'll be back next week with another industry leader. Have a great week.